from the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. This is Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. You can find more information about this program at religionforlife.com. I'm John Shuck. I've been interested in the historical Jesus for most of my religious career. In the words of the opening number of Jesus Christ Superstar, I long to separate the myth from the man. For me, the human being is far more interesting than the divine legend. Who was Jesus? What was he about? What did he really say? What did he really do? Was he an apocalyptic prophet predicting the end of the world? Was he a political zealot, as Reza Aslan suggests? By the way, Reza Aslan will be on Religion for Life in a couple of weeks. Was Jesus a nonviolent political activist, as Dominic Crossan promotes? Or was Jesus a wisdom teacher, such as many in the Jesus Seminar suggest? Perhaps he was a mythical character from the get-go, as Robert Price claims. Anyway, I find it all fascinating. I didn't realize why I was so interested in the historical Jesus until I read today's guest's book, A Scandalous Jesus, How Three Historic Quests Changed Theology for the Better, by Joseph Bessler. After reading Bessler's book, I realized that the quest for the historical Jesus is really about more than an intellectual interest, a curiosity. It's even more than a search for the authentic human for ourselves. It's also about the political realities of the searchers. Those who search for the historical Jesus do this search in opposition to creed and to custom. The search for the historical Jesus is a search that's met with resistance by those who wish to keep Jesus in a doctrinal box. The quests for the historical Jesus have been attempts to open up society from control of the church. That's what's historic about the historical Jesus. My guest is Dr. Joseph Bessler. He is the Robert Travis Peak Associate Professor of Theology at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he also serves as Associate Dean. In addition to his required theology courses, Dr. Bessler specializes in the interaction of religion and culture. As a fellow of West Star Institute, uh, popularly known as the Jesus Seminar. Dr. Bessler has published a variety of essays in the 4th R and in several Polbridge publications, and he will be a featured speaker at the fall meeting of West Star Institute October 23rd through the 26th, 2013 in Santa Rosa, California. Uh, and the presentation with David Galston, who was also interviewed on Religion for Life, is called The Once and Future God. In the summer of 2013, through Polbridge Press, he published a book called A Scandalous Jesus, How Three Historic Quests Changed Theology. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Welcome, Dr. Bessler, to Religion for Life. Thank you, John. It's just delightful to be with you. Thank you. Now, you, along with Robert Funk, the founder of the Jesus Seminar, came to Billings, Montana in April 2005 for a Jesus Seminar on the Road that I had hosted at my previous location, and I was in transition uh, from that congregation to the one I presently serve. And the seminar uh, was held at Rocky Mountain College instead of the church. Uh, and um, in fact, it might have been the last, if not one of the last, uh, Jesus Seminars on the Road in which Bob Funk participated uh, before he died later that year in the fall of 2005. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I remember announcing in the publicity 
that you were going to publish a book of theology uh, uh, around the, on the historical Jesus. And I wondered what a book of theology at that time would, would be like if it were based on the Jesus of history as opposed to the Jesus of myth and creed. So is this book, uh, Scandalous Jesus, the book you were thinking about at that time? Uh, a little bit. Thanks for remembering that. That was a marvelous uh, moment with Bob Funk. And uh, mm-hmm. I got to do two seminar on the roads with him. Uh, and enjoyed them uh, immensely. Um, yes, this is this is something of of that book. It would be possible, uh, and it's a, a project perhaps down the road a little bit more to actually do a constructive theology, uh, kind of limiting oneself to the uh, the resources that historical scholarship uh, has has opened up. Um, but this book has a a, a more um, what a, um, a somewhat easier goal in a way, and yet a more and yet a, a very important one, which is to argue that uh, historical Jesus research really has been overlooked by theology in mm-hmm. terms of the significance that it's played in opening up uh, liberal theology and then uh, opening up. Uh, liberation feminist theologies, as well as opening up now more contemporary um, uh, theological uh, approaches. So uh, this book really wanted to to make the argument uh, for theologians and lay people that uh, historical Jesus uh, research has really been significant. And you are uh, interested in in the big why question, as in uh, why there were and still are uh, quests for the historical Jesus. Uh, and, and the why of the quest uh, really can't be answered, as I understand you, without looking at the, the power structures that were in place as the scholars are doing their work. Is that right? Um, that's right. I mean, oftentimes, um, one of the reasons or one of the ways that theologians kind of dismiss or are um, even if it's not dismissing, he's got to set aside historical Jesus research, is because they'll say, well, that all was was settled in the 19th century, or uh, that was all kind of, um, you know, taken care of back then. What we miss is that each of these three major quests that I'm uh, exploring here actually is grounded in the political, cultural context of the time. And so, they're, they're raising questions. They're using historical Jesus to, to raise critical questions, both for the church and for the society. And they're doing this, and we're going to talk about each, uh, each of the quests, but uh, one of the things that, that uh, came to mind to me is that you imagine a scholar, you know, detailed work, you know, working with the Greek and the grammar on some specific point, but surrounding the scholar is a whole uh, storm of cultural and political and uh, and societal uh, controversy and pressures pushing uh, this person even to do the quest in the first place. Correct. Very well said. Yes. Um, and I'll just allow you to kind of follow up and where you want to go with that. But but uh, you make that point very well. Yes, it's exactly what's going on. Well, tell us about these three quests and their context. So what, what's the first one? Uh, the first one is um, what we typically know as this this kind of long period throughout the 18th and, and 19th century, uh, the classic, one could say, quest for the historical Jesus. And um, 
as it's described mainly by uh, Albert Schweitzer. And many people read Schweitzer and they think, well, that's settled it, that ended it. But Schweitzer really did not look at all uh, or very deeply at the historical, cultural, social pressures that you were just uh, speaking about. And so this is why I'm, I'm, I kind of reopen uh, that quest. But what happens is uh, to really understand the quest, you have to understand that what, was, what had happened in the 16th and then the 17th century uh, in response to the wars of the Reformation was an attempt to establish peace by saying uh, people in this area are going to be Catholic, right? Uh -huh. uh, and we're going to know that because the prince of the country or the, or the king is, is Catholic. And over here, uh, people are going to be uh, Lutheran because the prince is Lutheran. So they were trying to work out, they knew religion was important at this time, they knew it was pivotal, but what they did was they, they linked then the religion of a of a geographical area to the religion of the prince so the the the, the wording of this is who's the prince there's the religion right okay. religion of the prince is the religion of the people over time this causes real consternation and and real uh, anxiety and calls for religious toleration we in this country we hear that and we think toleration that's kind of a vague idea but here it was really quite pivotal and important. It was a very live issue. To what extent would you grant toleration for people where the legal religion, right, the legal religion was, say, Lutheran or Anglican? Would the prince tolerate uh, other religious voices? Would it tolerate Unitarians, for example, or deists? Right. Mm -hmm. And so this becomes really a very um, uh, difficult issue. Now, here's the kind of the crux of the theological problem. The established churches themselves had grounds for saying why they why they should be in charge of kind of overseeing public discourse. Right. Mm -hmm. So they had really enormous power as uh, kind of the legal churches. And they would say, look, we all know, being good Christians, uh, that we possess truths that transcend reason, right? The Trinity, high Christology, miracles, inspiration of Scripture. These are pretty powerful claims, and notice it's hard to prove those claims, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want to begin to open up a society where there's a legal religion, if you want to begin to say we should tolerate other religious voices, you're going to have to challenge those theological claims. And what happens is that deists, the, there's an emerging group of deists who begin to challenge the Trinity, and then the historical Jesus, that literature begins to challenge the assumptions of a high Christology, of a, of a God-man, and it challenges the assumptions of the, uh, the revealed truth of Scripture by looking at Scripture historically and uh, at looking at kind of the, the, uh, both the inspiration and then also the miracles of Scripture and challenging those miracles. So behind the quest for the historical Jesus is really part of a broader movement among religious voices to open up 
the society uh, and culture in in England and in Germany and then throughout throughout uh, Europe over the period of the 18th and 19th century. And in this opening up, uh, this is dangerous work. Uh, many of these scholars uh, couldn't even publish the work till after their death, and some who did, D.F. Strauss, for example, uh, lost his position. Uh, correct. And and again, we we tend to forget those kinds of issues. But um, um, even somewhat uh, earlier, um, a philosopher, David Hume, was was counseled uh, not to publish his his. Uh, a uh, piece on against miracles or critical of miracles for fear that his property uh, would be uh, taken and uh, and that he could uh, in fact be um, uh, you know sent out of the country i mean he could he could lose everything uh, so uh Ry Morris uh, never published uh, his very lengthy uh, manuscript uh, dealing with these issues for fear of what would happen to him when Strauss did publish in 1835, thinking that he had found perhaps a, a, a way forward. Uh, boy, the, the politics of, of Germany at that time and uh, the pressures on the monarchy uh, really did uh, backfire on, on him, and he was uh, summarily dismissed, never taught again. Um, and, and so this was really quite dangerous Materials. That's why I'm calling. That's why I'm. I'm using the title of a scandalous Jesus. These were uh, writings that, when they were published, right, mm -hmm. were viewed as scandals. They created firestorms of controversy, and uh, and so they were viewed as really quite dangerous. And the very firestorm that they cause is why they're important in the first place. Is because they are challenging the church's control over public discourse. Correct. And so now we, we, we look at issues like the separation of church and state, and many times we kind of yawn and say, well, there, that's kind of taken for granted. But mm -hmm. it was not taken for granted in any way during this time. And it was, uh, you know, a really a real profound kind of controversy that had to be argued uh, through. So and then we get uh, to we're the beneficiaries of that. Yeah, and so then we get to the 19th century, and and, uh, and and suddenly the church is starting to lose. Some historical events have happened, and the church ends up losing much of its control over public discourse. We have uh, public universities coming into play, uh, things like that. And so, uh, and that, and perhaps the first quest starts to end, and um, and then this. Uh, reaction to it, as I read your book, um, Neo-Orthodoxy, uh, Martin Collar and Karl Barth uh, coming in, and, and they're trying to, they're thinking that secular society is going to take over the church, and they have to find kind of a, a fortress for the church. Is that right? Uh, right. I mean, it, it's really quite amazing, this, this incredible shift that happens over the period of about 150 years, so that by the end of the 19th century, you now have the alarms going up on the part of of some theologians and uh, uh, and church people that a secular society is going to overwhelm and, and eradicate religion. Uh, well, this is a rhetorical posture, of course, mm -hmm. and it's used to kind of kind of raise high the walls and to uh, to develop what what Martin Kaler called uh, in the German term as a Sturmfreies Gebiet or a, a safety zone for faith. In other words, an impregnable space that uh, where, where secular society could not uh, uh, enter and, and affect 
these religious truth claims. And, and to do that, um, they reacted very strongly against even what had become liberal theology, and which, which affirmed human experience and the openness of, of human experience to the sacred. And Karl Barth and others said, no, um, that, that God is totally other, right? Mm -hmm. And that religious faith deals with uh, a kind of an absolute transcendence that we have no access to until God chooses to disclose God's self to us, right? Well, that's, that's almost like re if, if the separation of church and state said that the church should not influence the institutions of government, right? Officially in, in, at an institutional level, they should be kept separate. Mm -hmm. In some ways, Bart is arguing a parallel point that secular culture, only more dramatically, I think, that secular culture cannot affect or should in any way influence the teachings of the church. Um, so that's a position that really kind of begins to hold sway. And of course, Bart was not the most radical figure here. I mean, if you think of the development of fundamentalism, right? Right. Uh, Protestant fundamentalism towards the end of the 19th and into the 20th century. And then you also think of, of Vatican I in 1870, which declared the, the Pope to be um, infallible in matters of, of faith and, and doctrine. I mean, you really sense here the anxieties uh, among religious voices, Christian voices, to kind of nail down their authority. So at one level... Bart is not the most uh, extreme at all, uh, and yet his position is clearly one that, um, uh, as one moves forward, is going to prove problematic. My guest on Religion for Life is Dr. Joseph Bessler, uh, professor at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and author of the just-released uh, Scandalous Jesus, How Three Historic Quests Changed Theology for the Better. And we're looking into the second quest right now. So in response uh, to the isolation or the uh, of the church, um, you had some uh, scholars saying, no, wait a second, the historical Jesus can actually help us engage the world, and we need to do that. We don't want to isolate. And so we have uh, figures like uh, what Ernst Caseman. Yeah, tell me about yeah. him and what uh, and his movement and the second quest. Well, again, without without getting too much into particulars, uh, what and Caseman, there's there's quite a gap here. I mean, if if Bart is writing around 1916 and he lives a very long time, he keeps writing, but you you really see his work taking hold there. Caseman isn't writing until like 1954. It's the middle of the century okay. before the new quest really begins to get some legs. And the argument runs like this. We know, of course, that based on historical criticism, we cannot reconstruct the life of Jesus. There simply aren't the resources for that. But are there elements of authentic sayings with, within the New Testament that are still there? And that, in fact it might very well be important for theology to maintain that sense of contact with Jesus. Afterward, Jesus after, after all, Jesus is the founder here mm -hmm. of, of the Christian community. So shouldn't those sayings, shouldn't they be um, kind of held up and, and really utilized as, as a, an opening up of Jesus' own vision 
of Jesus' own religious vision and therefore as a guide to theology. Um, and, and this is an argument that goes on back and, and forth well into the 1960s, but it begins to gain traction. That uh, So here again, the, the new quest begins to uh, hold open the parables. And the argument is not that this is against doctrine, right? James mm-hmm. Robinson makes the, makes the claim. Uh, I've actually seen Marcus Bohr more recently kind of reiterate this claim. But it's, it's we're now in, in this discovery of Jesus' authentic words and speech. We're able to, in some sense, understand the humanity of the incarnation. Right, and this would be, and the liberation theologians like uh, James Cone uh, would would be here uh, saying that uh, really be, to be Orthodox Christian is to uh, take the the Jesus as a liberator of uh, of the oppressed. Right, and and I think what what may have even surprised some of these uh, New Testament scholars who are working on the New Quest is the way in which feminist scholars, liberationists, mm-hmm. African American liberationist scholars, black theologians would would also begin to take these kind of resources unearthed by the new quest, right? Mm-hmm. And then put that at the heart of their more theological understanding of Jesus as liberator or uh, Jesus as feminist. And uh, this is really quite quite amazing that these new voices that have had such a profound impact in uh, contemporary theology uh, actually have at least aspects of their of their roots in the new quest for the historical Jesus. Because what the new quest gave them was a sense of biblical research that gave some sense that that Jesus' parables uh, were actually about turning the world upside down. The Jesus' parables were actually about including people who had been excluded that Jesus' uh, parables and speech were challenges to conventions and religious conventions. And this, of course, lies at the heart of a feminist critique. It lies at the heart of a liberationist uh, critique. Uh, so it really is a, uh, an amazing kind of, of movement to watch unfold. I, uh, I wasn't sure it was actually going to do that when I, when I began to really uh, research this. But you did find that the it is this this second quest, um, as as you mentioned, all of the, all of the opening up uh, to political and social issues, bringing the church to engagement with the culture. Yet at the same time, they also wanted to remain uh, orthodox theologically. Right in and, the in the book, I I try to say it, that they're avoiding scandal. Right, that they were uh, trying to do that by. By, by speaking within the terms of doctrine, so fleshing out the incarnation. It's a remarkable argument. But then what happens is, in some ways, feminist theology, uh, African-American theology, uh, liberation theology in Latin America, in some ways, they're also then viewed as scandalous, right? These right. theological voices are by... Uh, so, so the Vatican, for example, has deep suspicions about liberation theology. Uh, it clearly, uh, Pope John Paul II, uh, when he came to the United States, clearly was not going to listen to um, the, the, uh, the call by uh, women's religious orders to uh, consider ordination. Uh, there were going to be kind of clear rebuffs of the implications of these 
theologies within more conventional uh, theological uh, schools. So let's then move ahead to the third quest, uh, the rise of, of fundamentalism and, and the religious right uh, is the context. Uh, and and this, this third quest is uh, uh, ultimately enters with uh, Robert Funk and John Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg and others and, and Bernard Brendan Scott, um, a, re, a renewed quest. Uh, tell us a little bit how this is, uh, takes place. Well, in, the, uh, in their book, The Five Gospels, um, and, and their opening, Roy Hoover and, and Bob Funk, really kind of make clear that, that what scholars were trying to do in organizing the Jesus Seminar was to provide a kind of public space. So notice a space outside of the church, mm-hmm. but also outside of the university in some ways, which has its own politics. And to try to actually enter public space and to do this by uh, having scholars discuss the, the sayings of Jesus in front of an audience, right? So there's a, there's a public audience that's there. And then as the scholars debate whether Jesus may have said this or not, that they actually are going to publish the results of those Votes. So the scholars are going to vote on that, and then they're going to publish that with newspapers. There's a real attempt here to, to have scholarship engaging the public voice. And uh, Funk of also, I mean, uh, throughout the whole um, development of Polebridge Press, really wanted scholars to kind of lay aside a lot of their jargon and to try to speak directly and to speak more in a more publicly accessible manner. And so this, this attempt, and it really is, an, I think, a, an amazing uh, and, and, and marvelous kind of idea that ends up being embodied in the Jesus Seminar and then in Westar, is to engage this scholarship and to, to bring it to a public attention and public availability. And we are out of time for this week, but we're going to continue this conversation next week. And we'll continue uh, with Joseph Bessler, author of A Scandalous Jesus, talking about the third quest for the historical Jesus, the renewed quest led by Bob Funk and the Jesus Seminar. So stay with us. All right, Joe? Uh, Good. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck. I am the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. Information about Religion for Life, including details about upcoming shows and links to podcasts of previous shows, links of stations that carry Religion for Life, all can be found at religionforlife.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC in Emory, Virginia. Be well.